Cam Gal Mule, Mule on the Mount, call him Jerry. Cam Gal Mule, Mule on the Mount, call him Jerry. Gonna ride him down, Lord, Lord, I'm gonna ride him down. I got a woman. Welcome back. To the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be looking at Zora Neale Hurston's autobiography, Dust Tracks on a Road. And I'll be looking at the first half or so of it. Uh, this is uh, a pretty interesting book. And one thing I want to mention first about uh, um, it's just that I noticed going through the Library of America and something I, I may be was somewhat aware of before but it didn't really like come clearly into my head until just now and that is this like the large number of african-american intellectual autobiographies that came out and i think a lot of this has to do with the fact that on you know before slavery ended one of the major literary genres available to black writers was autobiography right you had abolitionists who were promoting and publishing slave memoirs that was a big genre and of course that's how douglas got to start many other black writers started by telling the story of their life and this carries on in the years after slavery so you know du bois wrote an autobiography you had uh you know Charles Chest, uh, not not Chestnut, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Johnson. Um, James Johnson wrote one. Um, Zora Neale Hurston wrote one, the one we're going to look at now, you know, and many others did. So it was just kind of a common part. And it kind of, I think, I wonder if this carried on from the days of the slave memoirs and, you know, the, the tradition of writing one's own story. And I think that's a thing. I mean, I don't. I didn't see quite the frequency of white writers pursuing autobiographies as much as I see it among black writers. But anyways, uh, Dust Tracks on a Road. Uh, this was published in 1942. This is towards the end of Hurston's career. Now, it seems to me one of the major themes of this book is indiv individualism and independence. And um, this comes through from the very, very first chapter, even when she's talking about her childhood and her birthplace. And it carries on thematically to 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 the end. As many people know, Zora Neale Hurston was a political conservative. She was not hostile, I think, to collective action to, for the betterment of, of black people. But she was skeptical of things like a race spirit or racial consciousness or even racial solidarity. And she talks about that directly in this autobiography. But that's stuff I'm going to have to get at in the next episode when I look at the second half of this, this autobiography. But she's very much a believer in independence of you know being something that's just acted out and lived out and done right now she does realize there's trends and there's attitudes and there's values and that's why she's interested in folk culture but she's not one to kind of try to gravitate to some kind of unified racial spirit she, she does really, really strongly believe in individualism and individual effort and she thinks just as among whites there are there's trash and 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 great men that's true among black people as well. Um, and it's interesting that where she grew up, she is able to go back to the place she grew up and see 
a, a very, very African-American environment. And that's uh, key to her, her attitude throughout this autobiography. And there's other elements where she sees this, but it comes off first in her birthplace. Uh, she wrote an essay later on, uh, maybe it's earlier in her life, actually, she wrote it in 1942, but it's later in the book where she talks about the development of her own racial consciousness and how it came much later in life after she left her hometown. The reason why is that hometown was majority black. And it was, um, here's what she writes about it. Quote, it was not the first Negro community in America, but it was the first to be incorporated, the first attempt at organized self-government on the part of Negroes in America, end quote. So it's part of these, one of these reconstruction era efforts to, to establish institutions run by black people, you know, for their own benefit, right? And this manifests not just in towns and the creation of, of communities, but schools and independent churches and eventually universities. Uh, the, 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 the Union Leagues were often uh, led by African-Americans. So, you know, the Republican Party in the South had a lot of black leadership. So all this were efforts to cultivate this and enact, not just, you know, to actually make it real, black self-rule in, in, in the South. And, of course, that required the end of slavery for that to really be achievable. <clears throat> and that's the case with Entenville. Now, I don't know if that's true, that this is the first organized effort of self-government, but we'll take Soren Hirsch's word for it for now. Uh, quote, it all started when three white men on a ship off the coast of Brazil, they had been officers in the Union Army. When the bitter war had ended in victory for their side, they set out for South America. Perhaps the post-war distress made their native homes depressing. Perhaps it was just that they were young and it was hard for them to handle to the to return to the monotony of everyday life after the excitement of military life. But they never landed in Brazil. Talking together on the ship, the three decided to return to the United States and to try their fortunes in the unsettled country of South Florida. So um, actually, Ettenville has this international origin. She even talks a little bit about the, the Seminole War being a part of the, the deeper history of this, of this area. So, um, you know, the town really, though, is birthed in the era of Reconstruction, um, founded finally in 1886, although the origins of the town go back to the 18, late 1860s, um, formally founded in 1886. And the argument she gives here in this chapter, it's called My Birthplace, is that it kind of went from a society of, of uh, an interracial society, you know, where you had former Civil War veterans playing a role, you had free, you know, the, the Freedmen's Bureau playing a role in that, you had free sl former slaves, freedmen playing a role in creating the town. And eventually, though, it does evolve into black self-rule. Um, but at the same time, though, this community is rooted in conflict with Indians. It's got a very, very deep local history. And um, yeah, it, it's kind of, it's a very, very short vignette describing the origin of the town, but it, it looks at the, the complexities. It deals with the complexities of, of race and the color line of violence. You know, you got Native Americans playing a role in the, in the margins of the story creation of this town. But the end result is you end up with an experiment in black self-rule, which is, of course, what Zora Neale Hurston's personality, her politics, her her emotional connection to the town is going to come out of. And we've actually met Ettenville before because if you go back a few episodes where I looked at Mules and Men, she went to Ettenville to collect a lot of black folklore. Um, 
you know, she went back to her hometown to a place where it wasn't just political self-rule, but you had, of course, that kind of cultural autonomy that comes from that, that allowed folklore to to survive and endure um, independently of of majoritarian white culture in the South and across the United States overall. Okay, chapter two is called My Folks, and this chapter introduces her parents, of course, and it introduces another theme into this book, which is a pretty important one, especially in the first half of it, and that is migration and mobility and movement. Um, so her father is John Hurston, um, and he's, he's a migratory man. Uh, his mother, Lucy Ann Potts, is, is, you know, is a little bit less so, obviously, but um, uh, this migration of herself and her father are, are a theme that comes up a lot, especially in the early half of this, of this autobiography. Now, like anyone writing about their parents' courtship and the, the early, the parents' early, you know, how you were created, right? You know, you're going to run into a lot of mythology. You're going to run into, I mean, what's your sources for that? You don't remember it. So you have to build it from what you've heard, right? And with that, you get a lot of mythology. And you tend to romanticize that, I would say. And, and Sir Neil Hurston does a good job of not doing that, right? For instance, she's actually quite open about about the you know, like sexual desire um, between her parents and how much that that may have played a role in their their relationship because they do seem to be a bit uh, contrary in their attitudes throughout the early part of this book. We we see her talking, you know, about her father who is much more conservative, even though he's migratory. His mother, although more homebound, is much more optimistic about the future for for Zora Neale Hurston. Um, but, you know, there, there's differences between them, but they do seem to have a, they, they seem to jive physically. Quote, so looking back, I take it that Mama and Papa, in spite of their me his meanderings, were really in love. Maybe he was just born before his time. There was nothing then to hinder impulses. They didn't have the, the zippers on pants in those days, guaranteed to stay locked no matter what the strain. From what I can learn, those button-up flies were mighty tricky and betraying. Maybe I could ask around. Somebody will tell me what modern inventions have had done has done a lot for morals. I mean, that's just uh, really funny too about uh, you know the, the the impact of the zipper on sexuality. Uh, I know we've heard about the automobile. I, I'm sure whatever benefit that the zipper had in morality was undone by the automobile, because <laughs> uh, that of course the automobile allowed young men and young women to get away from their parents' house. But I don't know. Uh, technology and, and morality. It's, it's, it's an interesting subject to look into a little bit more. Um, but they are very, very different um, people, her parents. Um, quote, Mama exhorted her children at every opportunity to jump at the sun. We might not land on the sun, but at least we would get off the ground. Mama, Papa did not feel so hopeful, let, let well enough alone. It did not do for Negroes to have too much spirit. He was always threatening to break mine or kill me in the attempt. My mother was always standing between us. She concluded that I was impudent and giving too much talking back, but she didn't want to squinch my spirit too much for fear that I would turn out to be a mealy-mouthed ragdoll over the time I got grown. Papa always flew hot when Mama said that. I don't know whether he feared for my future with the t tendency I had to stand and give battle, or that he felt a personal reference to Mom's observation. He predicted dire things for me. The white folks were not going to stand for it. 
I was going to be hung before I got grown. Somebody was going to blow me down for my sassy tongue. Blah, blah, blah. You know, the quote goes on with this. But we see the difference between their attitudes. And maybe, in a way, because his her mother kind of grew up in this community and, you know, and kind of experienced black self-rule, she had a certain attitude about these potentialities, while her father, who did migrate around and saw the South more broadly and, and had more interactions with white people in his daily lives, you know, was was more pessimistic about what future the future might hold for her and for them. But, um, you know, now Zora Dale Hurst's conservatism is really a political conservatism, right? I don't think it's one. It's, it's not a social conservatism. She doesn't believe in the limitations of, of any one person, right? She's just kind of... Uh, more for individual effort than than collective action. Um, so her father's conservatism was a very very different time type the, the, of her con, than her conservatism as would evolve later in her life. And we'll talk about that more in the next episode. So I, I see this as kind of the uh, what she's focusing on earlier in this in the story of her life is is you know migra- migration and community and how they kind of go together or how they run in in contrary at times but uh and i think her two parents kind of represent one versus the the other and this comes up again in chapter three which is titled i get born which obviously is about her her birth is only a four page chapter but it it also hints at these two different tensions between family and or migration and and family and community on the other hand and how do we see this? Well, we see this literally in her, the time when she was born. Quote, uh, my saying goes like this. My mother's time had come and my father was not there. Being a carpenter, successful enough to have other helpers on the job, he was always away on building business as well as preaching. It seemed that my father was always away from home for months at a time. I had never been told why, but I didn't hear that he threatened to cut his throat when he got the news. It seemed that his one daughter was all that he figured he could stand. My sister Sarah was his favorite child, but that was one but one girl was enough. Plenty more sons, but no more girl babies to wear out shoes and bring in nothing. End quote. Um, not the most flattering thing um, to say about your newborn daughter, but again, this is kind of the mythology of her family that she's drawing on here to to tell this story. Um, chapter four is called The Inside Search. And this deals with quite a number of years. Now, Zora Neale Hurston was born in 1891. And, uh, you know, she's not going to really finish her college work until she's almost 40 years old. So um, it's, it's a big chunk of her life is her, her upbringing, her, her education, her, her, her very useful jobs, the jobs she pursued as a youth. But the inner search, this chapter, chapter four, it's a really important one. It's a quite a lengthy one, too, which deals with the development of Zora Neale Hurston's curiosity and how she cultivated that and how it emerged in her early youth. Now, it starts out how she learns about race. This is something she explores with in an essay later on um, in more more detail, because, again, she's in a large she's she's pretty much in a black community where white people they pass through, they visit, but they're not, on the surface, an oppressive force in those in those communities. Um, and it's only later on when she starts to venture out that she gets more of identity. She identifies as a, as a black woman, right? There's little bits here about 
how races learn now. And of course, it's something that, that, that all people go through, not just black people. All people experience uh, the creation of a racial identity at some point in a, in a racist society. It's, it's inevitable that it will happen. Um, and it's talked about a little bit here. Um, but a lot of this is about kind of her movement inward and how she started to develop her own consciousness inside about her identity and her interests and her curiosities and she gets it through her school she gets it through her experience with books the various learning she gets into uh, now in many ways and this is a common thing among intellectual biographies is how people find that their own intellectual curiosities and their pursuit of 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 intellectual their kind of intellectual quest leads to a greater social loneliness I think Zora Neale Hurston seems to do better than many other people have done in kind of maintaining social connections. And we'll see this later on when she, she starts to attend college and goes to high school very late in her life. And as you'll see, she actually she eventually had to fake her, her name or her birth date. I mean, she had to fake her birth date to, you know, she, so she, was, in she was in high school, like finishing up her high school in her like mid to late 20s. And she said she was born in like 1901. When she was actually born in seven, so, so she took ten years off her life to kind of fake that she was still a high school student. So it's, um, you know, it's going to be a long process for her, partially because she had to go to work. Um, but very early on in her schooling, though, as she was a young person, she started to develop this 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 um, this inward interest, right? But as I said, it it doesn't quite take away from her ability to be social and interact with other people, and that's going to be very key to her her work because she's going to primarily study folklore and by studying folklore she is able to connect to just to connect to people right if you want to be an anthropologist you have to be able to talk to people you can't just uh you can't just do a book book work to to do that kind of research now part of what she says about this is it, it her education and her reading started to break her away from her community so I, I think it's interesting how her research will bring her back to this community but in her youth, she kind of starts to venture out with this kind of inward exploration, which really takes her out into a broader world, um, which isn't just black writers, obviously, because the majority culture that you're going to read is, is a white culture. So she's going to read Norse mythology. She's going to read about Christianity. She's going to read Gulliver's Travels and Grimm's Fairy Trails and the Greek and Roman myths and all that, especially the Norse myths. She emphasizes exploring the Norse myth a lot, which she, she quite liked. Um, so anyways, here's what she says about this. Quote, in a way, this early reading gave me great anguish through all of my childhood and adolescence. My soul was with the gods and my body in the village. People just would not act like gods. Stewed beef, fried fat back, and morning grits were no ambrosia from Valhalla. Raking backyards and carrying out the chamber pots were not the tasks of Hercules. I wanted to be away from the drabness and stretch my limbs in some mighty struggle. I was only happy in the woods. And when the ecstatic Florida springtime came strolling from the sea, trance glorifying the world with its aura, then I hid out in the tall wild oaks that waved like a glinty veil. I nibbed sweet oak stalks and listened to the winds sowing and sighing through the crowns of the lofty pines. I made particular friendships with one huge tree, and I always played about its roots. I named it a lovely pine, and my chums came to know it by that name. In contrast to everyone around me, I was not afraid of snakes. They fascinated me. And then she goes on about that. Um, but she's definitely breaking away from her 
her family and friends. All right, so education creates a bit of, of, of loneliness, unfortunately. And that's how she ends this chapter, uh, saying, I consider my real childhood ended with the coming of the pronouncements. True, I fought and played and studied with other children, but I always stood apart within. Often I was in some lonesome wilderness, suffering strange things and agonies while other children in the same yard played without a care. I asked myself, why me? Why, why? A cosmic loneliness was my shadow. Nothing and nobody around me really touched me. It was one of the blessings of this world that few people see visions and daydreams. End quote. And that's the end of chapter four. It's, it's really a, a really important chapter. Again, common in intellectual biographies because there's that moment in which people have to establish when they first started reading, what they read, how that inspired them, how that cultivated their thinking. Um, and I wonder if it's true that people who are kind of intellectual and, and move that way, become scholars, how much they they write back, they, they how much do they reinterpret their early history as largely an intellectual biography? Like, you know, because memory is something we, we cultivate because we think about things that happened in our past, right? If we see ourselves as romantic, we might think our first memories are those of our first love or the first person we, we kind of became enamored with. If we're a warrior, we might think back to our, when we think of our youth, we, we focus on our first memories being the first fight we got into or something. And so an intellectual might think back, what were the first books I read or what were the first times I started to think independently of, of my teachers or whatever. I think that's what Zora Neale Hurston is trying to do in this chapter four. It's a really nice chapter. I, I love this one very much. So if chapter four looks at the origin of her curiosity, chapter five, which is called Figure and Fantasy, looks at the origin of her creativity. And this creativity is built in her community. And I, I think this is, I'm thinking of like Murray Bookchin and something he said about, you know, he, he wrote, he gave a speech and it came up a lot in his work too. He was an anarchist ecological thinker from the mid and later 20th century. And he wrote, or he, I think this was in a talk he gave to her, he talked about forms of freedom, right? And he says, freedom must emerge from a, like a strong community, right? For it to be meaningful. Otherwise, we're just like independent people living on, on islands, right? Freedom, and this even is in Rousseau, as, as I recall, that somehow our conception of freedom must be built into community. Otherwise, it's kind of meaningless. If, if we're not interacting with other people, freedom is, is really just us on a desert island right um and but that those form that that's if you think of it like the soil on which our individuality is the plant that emerges from a soil that soil could be toxic it could be corrupted it could be poisonous or it could be really wholesome and 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 healthy but without that you're you're just like in the jesus myth right the scattered seeds on the uh, on rock or whatever and she does emphasize that her that her creativity, her independence, her her autonomy, her intellectual autonomy comes out of a community. And the metaphor for this is Joe Clark's porch. Joe Clark, a, a neighborhood person, who basically had this porch in which different people would sit, sit at and talk to. And this very much parallels a scene in Mules and Men, in which she goes and visits a porch much like this to talk to the men who are sitting there. And hear stories from them, you know, and has a conversation with them about folklore. So, um, but it's it's a place of community, and it's a it's it's uh, of discourse, 
of, of vulgar conversations, but real meaningful communities being built there. Um, you know, it's not woke. I'm sure people would, could criticize this in all kinds of ways now, but for the time, it, you know, she's enamored by this. Quote, there would be, for instance, sly references to the physical conditions of women, irregular love affairs, brags on male potency by the parties of the first part and the like. It did not take me long to know what was meant when a girl was spoken of as a runt or bigot. For instance, someone would remark, Ah, the daddy is runt, you know. Yep, someone is telling me a pitcher can go along, go to a well a long way, but it's bound to get broke sooner or later. Or some woman or girl would come, switching past the store porch, and some man would call her, Hey, sugar! What's on the rail for the lizard? Then again, I would hear some man say that. I gotta have my ground rations. If one woman can't take care of it, I gets me another. And, and, quote, and she goes on with this. And obviously this is vulgar, uh, earthy talk going on. And it's partially, partially just the life in the community that she's a, she's a part of. But I'm struck here, reading this, how much Zora Neale Hurston's attitude about herself and her community are... And, and, and her own independent way of looking at the world come, is rooted in this, this, this very strong community, all symbolized by Joe Clark's porch. Uh, and she even mentions here how she heard some of her first, some of the first stories, the lies, as they're called in Mules and Men. I think she uses the same language here to refer to the, the folklore that, that people shared while at this, this porch. Um, Ultimately, though, this all climaxes in in Neil Hurston's, you know, identity, uh, identification of, and awareness of her own creativity, right? And the chapter ends with the growing blurring of of reality and folklore in her own mind, right? Which I think is really key to her own creativity. The fact that she will write folklore, but also fiction. She'll write nonfiction accounts and historical accounts, but she'll also write you know, her own stories, and it's all blurred together. Like, that. I mean, the way, I think even Stephen King says this once, you know, that, like, fiction is just the lie, is the truth in the lies, right? Is, is the truth hidden in lies. And that's all in there. This is another really great chapter. I think four and five together are just really wonderful um, chapters dealing with how a young person develops their own intellectual curiosity and eventually intellectual independence while being rooted in a very, very strong community with its own culture and traditions and, and values. Perhaps vulgar, perhaps not in our 21st century mindset woke enough, but still pretty amazing and pretty awesome stuff um, in the sense of a real lived community. Um, so uh, chapter six, um, I think this is mostly set in 1904, when Zora Hurston would have been 13. Um, and this is, the chapter is called Wandering, but it's really the chapter that first deals with her experiences of death. She f experiences the death of her mother, this illness and death of her mother, and another woman, Cousin Jimmy. Or is that a man? Yeah, a man, Cousin Jimmy. And out of this, we get her beginning her phase of wandering about and, and working. And that's going to be a lot of her late teens and 20s is going to be work and she and that work is going to take her in many different places across the the south but she makes a distinction first that like the death of her mother leads to her first wandering but that wandering is it's not yet in physical place quote that hour of my wandering not so much in geography but in time 
than not so much in time as in spirit. Mama died at sundown and changed the world, that is, the world that had been built out of her body and her heart. Even the physical aspects fell apart with a suddenness that was startling. My older brother was up in Jacksonville in school and he arrived home after Mama had passed. And then she had been washed and dressed and laid on the ironing board in the parlor. And then she goes on to talk about the, the, the funeral. But how does this begin her real physical wanderings? Well, it, it does it because she then goes to Jacksonville to also be a student there. So that's, you know, her father is not the most available, I guess. And so she ends up going to Jacksonville to school. So this is um, the first big change in her, in her life. Um, and this is carried on in the next chapter, chapter seven, which is called Jacksonville and After, which again, it's, it starts in 1904 and it, it, it's, it's her years and basically in Jacksonville for her, her schooling. Remember now she's, she's 13 when she's uh, continuing her schooling in a new location because that's where some family is. Her father remains back at home. However, much of this chapter, a whole lot of this chapter, deals with her hatred for her stepmother. That's a really big theme here. I, I don't know, it's, unless you're interested in kind of the, the more lurid details of, of, of her family, it may not be as interesting to you. I'm more interested in the politics and her, the, like the stuff in chapter four and five was really, I thought was really great. Um, she really expresses her rage here for her her stepmother because she gets news eventually that her father remarries and she just has some i mean zordale i think she must have still hated her mother in 18 or her stepmother in 1842 because she, she doesn't tone down her her language at all in talking about her um what do we have here I mean, there's descriptions of physical violence between Zora Neale Hurston and her stepmother. Uh, here's just some of it. I mean, she goes on for pages about this relationship. Quote, that fight brought me things to a head between Papa and his wife. She said, Papa had to have me arrested, but Papa said he didn't have to do but two things, die and stay black. And then he would never let me sleep in jail at night. She took the matter to the church and the people laughed. Most of them had been praying for something like that to happen. They were annoyed because she didn't get her head stomped. The thing rocked on for a few months. She demanded that Papa handle some of the sisters of the church who kept cackling her about it. But he explained that there was nothing he could do. They were old friends of my mother's, of my mother's, and it was natural for them to feel as they did. Um, but pages and pages about her, her hatred, her hostility with her, her stepmother. And that's a lot of what Chapter 7, Jacksonville and After is about. We don't get too much about her schooling. Um there but um but it's a big part of the story here um she increasingly begins to feel more isolated and her wandering kind of contributes to her feelings of isolation um she says at the end of the chapter my vagrancy had begun in reality i knew that there was an end of my journey and it and it was and happiness in it for me it was certain and true by the way its agony was equally certain so anyways, that, that's chapter seven, mostly about her relationship with her, her stepmother. Um, but then we kind of enter this new stage of wandering for her. So she's already been in Jacksonville, away from Ettonville, away from her home. But uh, in chapter eight, we see her kind of going out into an even broader world. And this chapter is called um, Backstage in the Railroad. 
And uh, it's revealed early in this chapter that she needs a job. She needs some kind of income. And she tries various work. And again, much of her late teens and 20s are going to be spent at work until she kind of returns to school. And that's what chapter eight mostly is covering. There's a lot of, it's a long chapter and it covers a lot of, a lot of Zora Neale Hurston's life. All right. As much of her 20s are kind of summed up in this chapter. Um, I would actually would like to know a little bit more about her, her work in life because that's some of the pretty fascinating stuff here. Uh, in my perspective, I mean, the, I mean, there's something kind of actually amazing about Zora Hurston, in that she, you know, despite her curiosity and her her education early in her life and her her ability to to kind of step outside of herself and her, the experiences of her small town, you know, life worked against her at every step of the way to to get her to kind of stay to just be a working class person, right and it's kind of luck that that gave her other opportunities to be sure but you know how often do people who you know don't go back to high school into their late 20s become you know great writers it, I, don't, I don't know I, there might be other examples to be sure but and there's something kind of amazing though about i think zora neale hurston's ability to go from kind of drudgery and labor and, and, and wandering and, and rootlessness and the loss of family members and all that to becoming a great, great intellectual. And of course, the end of her life is going to be, you know, poverty and, and she's going to be forgotten largely. And that's, it's, it's kind of sad, but she achieved so much during her, her brief creative period. I mean, you know, it's only a couple, it's actually less than two decades where she's really producing most of her work. She's kind of like Melville in that way. Like Melville is someone who is mostly obscure throughout his life, but in a decade and a half produced this wonderful, these wonderful works that we can still enjoy. Um, but anyways, we're not going to get there until the next episode when we look at the second half of her life. And even then, she doesn't say that much about her actual writing. It's not, it's not the primary concern of her memoirs. I think she figures you can buy her book, I guess. Um, but anyways, chapter eight is about her working life you know, as she's entering into adulthood. And she wanders from job to job. She works as a domestic servant. Um, you know, she's got, um, you know, she's dealing with this remarriage of her father. Um, you know, and she ends up working for a theater, a Gilbert and Sullivan troupe that travels around. So she becomes a maid for the lead singer of this troupe. And so this allows her to travel throughout the South um, and she's got all these wonderful stories here. One of my favorite is the story of, of Johnny, an ex-con who ends up being associated with uh, the troop. But it turns out he has this pretty brutal history of murder and he got out of jail and he was committing crimes. And there was this kind of moral dilemma whether they should call the police, even though it would mean he'd go back to jail and maybe be executed or all that. Well, all that. Um, you know, some good stuff here. Good, good, nice stories in this chapter. And I wish there would have been more of it, actually. But I think the key of what she's trying to say about this time with this troupe is this, like, interracial, interclass community that gets formed, right? Because she doesn't want to reduce people to their race and class. I think that's the heart of her politics. And, and I don't want to say that's just her conservatism. I mean, she is reacting to especially in the second half of this book, reacting to people who are calling for kind of a broader racial consciousness, which she doesn't seem to have 
I mean, she appreciates to a degree that, but she, but she finds something kind of insipid in reducing people to their race. I mean, and that's why she doesn't really buy, you know, the some of the racial pride politics. Um, she thinks people should be proud of themselves as individuals. Um, but during this time working, she's in a kind of interracial and interclassed environment where people weren't reduced to their skin color or their or their um, how much money they brought they, they brought in. Quote, more than that, I saw 30 odd people made up of all classes, classes and races living a communal life. There were little touches of professional jealousy and the caddy crack now and then, but let sickness or trouble touch any member and the whole cast rallied around to help out. It was a marvelous thing to see. There were a few there from good families and well-to-do homes who slept in shabby hotels and made meals on sandwiches without a murmur. From what they said and did, you would think they were as poor as the rest. With all branches of Anglo-Saxon, Irish, street Jews, and one Negro together in a huddle, and all friendly, there was a lot of racial gags. Everyone was so sure that nobody hesitated to pull them. It was all taken in good part. Naturally, all the Negro gags were pulled on me. There was enough of the others to divide things up. For instance, one night, Miss M cut her eyes in my direction slyly and began to talk about blondes, brunettes, and brunettes. Burntettes, sorry. Blondes, brunettes, and burntettes. They gagged me so much before overture that they called it, they called it made Miss M go out there and cut a hog. In the long recitative before the first act of Pinafore, with the heroine mulls over what she is leaving in her father's house when one is going on and marrying a poor hero, she mentions dirty children crying and dinging clothes of drying. Okay, anyways. That is her experience of kind of uh, an environment in which race is real. I mean, people are joking about race and commenting on race, but it's a community that transcends that, right? And this parallels, I think, the community she grew up in, Ettonville, which was all black, but because it was all black, it was it was kind of beyond race as well. People were judged for reasons besides skin color, right? Yeah, white people would come in and out, but race wasn't the primary division in that community, right? To where she's living, working in a troop that's wandering about, where again, race and class aren't the main divisions, even though she's now the complete opposite. She's the only black person in the in the community. So, yeah, I think I know what she's trying to do here in contrasting Entenville and this troupe and why she spent so much time on both of those places. So anyways, um, that's the first half or so of Dust Tracks on a Road, uh, a very fascinating uh, autobiography. I think it's worth checking out. But um, I will say more about this in the next episode. I'll look at chapters 9 through, I guess it's 16, which will finish it up. And that will get more into her academic life, her schooling, her advanced schooling, her research life, her books, and, and finally her politics. She has a really important chapter called My People, My People, which summarizes her views on, on racial politics. And... And I'll, I'll talk about that in the, in the next episode. But for now, if you have any of your thoughts about Zerlina Hurston's autobiography or her life or anything, any questions you have or anything more you'd like to know, anything I'm misinterpreting or getting totally wrong, please let me know. I'm probably wrong about much of this. So just leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast 100 pages, 100 pages at gmail.com. And I'll try to get back to you or, or 
or, or reply to. Um, but that's it for now. I'll see you next time when I finish up my thoughts on no, Dust Tracks on the Road no, by Ezra Norhurst. Thanks for, for listening. I am a told her it must be the hell fire captain. <clears throat> I am a told her must be the hell fire captain. Ha, he had blue eyes. Lord, Lord, he had blue eyes. Oh, don't you hear them? A cuckoo, cuckoo.